0: Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 100, with Dan Adute.
1: You know, in Hollywood, I'd go to these Hollywood parties or like meet celebrities and stuff. And I'm always awful at meeting celebrities. Like I, I clam up, I don't know what to say. And inevitably, I would just start talking about food because that was my way in. And I knew a lot about food and they'd want to talk about food. And I realized like everyone has an opinion on food. Even if their opinion is that they don't care about food, that's an opinion on food. And I started to do this thing where I'd go to people's homes and I would just like, look into their fridges and take a picture and i'd post it and uh <laughs> and they, and, they, and it was so invasive and awful to do but also people really loved it like they loved to see what was in these people's fridges so i was like why don't i turn that into a podcast and yeah so i interview celebrities people in general who are not in the food world we'll probably have like one or two people a season that are in the food world um in fact last year's was
0: ruth reichel this year's was jacques pepin This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. Hey everyone, I want to start by saying that I'm super excited to bring you episode 100 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. In reality, I guess it's just a number, but it feels like such a milestone, and I wanted to make note of it. I'll also be doing some awesome free giveaways on social media this week, and I'd love for you to share this episode. I also want to remind you that we still have the Patreon, and you can go to patreon.com forward slash Restaurants to support the podcast and the organization. This week, my guest is Dan Adut. He's a stand-up comic, actor, writer, producer, and podcast host. He's a national headliner who's a frequent guest on the Tonight Show and is currently acting on Netflix's Cobra Kai. He's garnered fans as a character actor on the show's Bajillion Dollar Properties, Shameless, Workaholics, and Disney Channel's Kickin' It. On his podcast, Green Eggs and Dan, he takes a new look at You Are What You Eat and brings listeners in on the conversations about food, life, and more with some of his most entertaining friends. Not your typical food show, Green Eggs and Dan is the type of food podcast you'd make with your friends around the table, roasting more than just food. Dan's show has hit number one on the podcast charts, and his guests have included Jacques Pepin, Ruth Reichel, Padma Lakshmi, Henry Winkler, Paul F. Tompkins, and Eliza Schlesinger. Starting in August, you can see him in a brand new Food Network cooking competition show called Raid the Fridge. On the show, we talk about Persian food and cooking, luxury food ingredients, and the dining scene in general. You'll hear how he went from pre-med to stand-up and acting, and now podcasting. And as a fan of Colbert, I had to know if he was Team Daniel or Team Johnny. Dan's hilarious, and you should definitely check out his stand-up, especially if he's coming to a town near you. And be sure to listen to his podcast, Green Eggs and Dan. And now, a quick word from our sponsor, Savory Jobs. Are you shocked at what it costs to post a job advertisement? Instead, imagine a job site for restaurants only, where you could post as many jobs as you wanted, and it only cost 50 bucks Not for each job you post, but for all the jobs you post, and for an entire year. Well, my sponsor Savory Jobs has made that a reality. They've launched a revolutionary, easy-to-use job site just for restaurants. And it only costs $50 for unlimited job posts for an entire year. Go to SavoryJobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the restaurant industry. And for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVORY10 and get 10% off your listing. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. Forget the big corporate job sites like Indeed and Monster. Join the revolution at savoryjobs.com and use code SAVORY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Chris. This is very exciting. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. This is a little different type of show for many of my listeners.
1: Yeah, uh, I am not a professional chef. Uh, I and I am a part owner of a restaurant, so I am a non-chef with a restaurant.
0: (laughs) Well, well, there you go. You also did you have a restaurant called Falafel Fills at some point? Was that right?
1: Well, that that (laughs) unfortunately has gone out of business. But yes, I did. uh, I was an actor on a Disney show, and I owned a restaurant called Falafel Fills uh and uh it was kind of a racist character for the moment it was for the time it was okay but uh maybe looking back on it it was a questionable questionable choice by disney but you know it helped pay for this podcast equipment so
0: yeah i'm a kid of the 80s and i want to show all my all my favorite things to my kids and i go back sometimes and watch these things even stuff from the 90s and you're like "Eh, i don't know so much about that like oh man even even things like five years ago
1: I just watched Step Brothers the other night, and that had a lot of questionable stuff in it, too. And that that was not that long ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what holds up from today, the things they're making, if that stuff's going to be bad. Like, I don't I know.
1: How. I know.
0: Well, so, yeah, you're a comedian, you're an actor, you're a writer, and now you're a podcaster. Um, I want to kind of hear a little bit about your career path and how that started. You went to school. Were you pre-med? Is that right?
1: Yeah, I went to Johns Hopkins. I was pre-med and I got into medical school and then decided to give my parents a a heart attack and go into stand-up comedy. And uh, yeah, so I moved to New York and I started doing stand-up in the early 2000s. And at the same time, the food scene in New York back then was amazing. It was exploding. It was like they were just coming. It was like they were revolutionary for all of America. Like It seemed like the chefs in New York in the early 2000s were were the kernel of what you see now every in every city in America, which is like you know these regional cuisine, hyper local. That whole movement sort of was starting in New York at the time. So, I was a poor stand-up comic, but any penny I made went to you know uh, Wiley Dufresne or April Bloomfield or Mario Batali or like all these all these people who were you know starting up the food scene there, and I just got obsessed with food.
0: Yeah, that's when I really fell in love with it. I mean, I graduated from culinary school in 98 and, you know, I was poor because I was working in food service, but every bit of money that I could scrounge was spent on going out to eat and just kind of seeing what was out there because that was, you know, kind of really pre-internet, right? Like when I was in mm-hmm. school, I mean, we only had very, very basic internet. You didn't really know what was going on. But by, right. you know, the early 2000s, you started to see all this stuff like, oh, wow, this is what they're doing in New York City. Like I grew up in the Boston area um, hmm. and you started to become more aware of, you know, what's going on in Chicago and L.A. And I was just like, wow, like I've got to start traveling and going to all these places.
1: Yeah, and it also seemed like back then, like in the 80s and 90s, you either had insane fine dining temples like Le Cirque or Danielle, you know, these 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 restaurants that you couldn't get a reservation at and you had to have a suit and tie to, go, to walk into, um, or you had like fast food. I mean, there was like no... There was no happy medium. There was no casual fine dining. And I think that that's what was being created at the time. And, you know, uh, arguably still, I, I you know, in my opinion, I I would take a good casual fine dining restaurant over, you know, a tasting menu nine times out of 10, I'd say.
0: I say that on the podcast all the time. Like, I really love... You know, if we're talking like Michelin rated type places, like maybe like a good one star or even a two, you know, I Mm. think the last time I wore a suit to a restaurant was I went to La Den because that was someplace I really wanted to go. Yeah. Uh, You know, they have like their mandatory jacket requirement there. And um, I can remember doing that. And I was like, it just felt so stuffy and formal. Like the food was really good, but I just, you know, I want to go to a place where they're having some really awesome food, but it's a much more laid back environment. And once in a while, it's, it's fun. It's fun to feel like Michael Bloomberg for a night.
1: But I do think that in general, yeah, I, I'm going to go so far as to say I live in the Bib Gourmands. That's, that's, that's my, Most my definitely sweet spot. Oh, I yeah. love the Bib Gourmands. Um, but yeah, Bib Gourmand and One Star Michelin are my, are my jam. Two Star maybe. But the threes, it's like, I, I think, I don't know, in general, there's so much other stuff that they need to get right where the food is like, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's an afterthought, but it's definitely like. Their service has to be on such an insane level that I just can't imagine the food being so insanely amazing, the service being so insanely amazing. There's only like a handful of restaurants that can actually pull that off. And even then, even that place, like I'd maybe put, you know, like Blue Hill for me is in that category. Like I'd want to go once every five years, you know what I mean?
0: yeah so. and for the amount of money, like you know, let's say I'm going to New York City, I could dine out three nights at like a really solid like bib gourmand kind of place is what it would cost to say go to per se, not you know not knocking like per se and Thomas Keller or anything like that, but I would much rather go spend you know like eighty to a hundred bucks, three nights than drop three hundred bucks in one sitting,
1: yeah, and the other thing is like look, places like per se you know their their price to rent out their space is so astronomical that to an extent they have to keep and this is they have to keep it safe to some extent and this is sort of my argument against a lot of new restaurants in New York now is that the rents are so high that to keep it up you can't really take a lot of chances and you have to have a lot of safe dishes and i started to see all these new restaurants in New York that were super expensive you know it's like you got a chicken you got y- your salmon you've got your ribeye and that's it and it's like well okay that's that's fine but I I don't want to spend forty bucks for you know a you know a chicken drumstick and a thigh you know with a something that they pipette on top of like I you know I just need I want I'd I much prefer to go to restaurants that are taking chances and doing weird things and it's hard to do that when you have such high rents which is part of the reason why I think the L A food scene kind of overtook New York because it was cheaper to start up here and you could go six months without, you know, three months without making a profit and still, you know, play around. And in New York, if you go one month without making a profit, you're done.
0: Yeah, it's a really rough business, which is why I've never wanted to have a restaurant. I mean, when I was in culinary school, I wanted to have a restaurant because I think that's what you did at the time. Like you went to right. culinary school, you graduate and it's like, oh, of course, I'm going to start my path to like owning a restaurant. And then you start looking into it. It's like, I don't know if owning a restaurant is the best decision. Like that's where I want to be. And um, I guess that's like the path I didn't take. And And I'm starting to see people now kind of aging out of that as, you know, I have a lot of friends my age who are like 40 or so, and they're like, "Ah, I've kind of done the like restaurant thing, like, let's find another avenue to go.
1: Yes, a million percent. I mean, and the other thing is like, especially post-pandemic, you know, people have gotten so used to bringing the creature comforts of the outside world into their homes, right? So... You know, they, they they're getting everything delivered, their groceries, like they're watching. No one's going out to the movies anymore. I mean, that was a trend that was happening even before the pandemic. So I could totally see that people would want to, uh, you know, bring the restaurant to their
0: home. Why not? You know, that's what I'm banking on. I mean, that's what keeps me in business. Right. Uh, <laughs> so how long how long have you been doing stand up now and and movies and stuff?
1: I've been doing stand up for about 20 years now, uh, 20, 21 years. And, um, you know, I started acting and writing about 10 years ago. And the food, you know, food was this constant drumbeat in the background. And I never really combined those two worlds, like comedy and food. I kept them really separate. It was where I was almost like I, I, I joked to my friends, like I was kind of in the closet about my food world to my comedy friends. And because it's, you know, foodies in general aren't the funniest people and comedians don't really care about food. So I was kind of straddling these two worlds. And a couple of years ago, I was like, all right, that's it. I want to, I need to meld these two worlds and see what happens. So I started my podcast, which is sort of a comedy food podcast. And I mean, within four months, it became the number one food podcast in America.
0: I'm coming for you. That's, that's, uh, no, that's, <laughs> it. that's no small feat. You know, uh, I hit like number 23 on the charts, and that was kind of uh, a huge deal for me. you That's know? awesome. Not that it's all about numbers and stuff, but it's like, you know, is anyone listening to me just talking to these people about food? And it's really cool when you see that um, people are interested in something you have to say. But yeah, so you've got this show uh, about looking into people's fridges, which I think is super interesting. So how does this work? You have a guest and you ask them to take a photo of what's in their fridge and then you guys talk about it. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the way this happened, the name of the podcast is Green Eggs and Dan. And, you know, in Hollywood, I'd go to these Hollywood parties or like meet celebrities and stuff. And I'm always awful at meeting celebrities. Like I, I clam up. I don't know what to say. And inevitably, I would just start talking about food because that was my way in. And I knew a lot about food and they'd want to talk about food. And I realized like everyone has an opinion on food, even if their opinion is that they don't care about food. That's an opinion on food. And I started to do this thing where I'd go to people's homes and I would just like look into their fridges and take a picture and I'd post it. And, uh, <laughs> and, they, and, they, and it was so invasive and awful to do. But also people really loved it. Like they loved to see what was in these people's fridges. So I was like, why don't I turn that into a podcast? And yeah, so I interview celebrities, people in general who are not in the food world. We'll probably have like one or two people a season that are in the food world. Um, In fact, last year's was Ruth Reichel. This year's was Jacques Pepin.
0: That's huge. I just listened to that episode uh, last week.
1: Yeah, it's just me fanboying out for an hour. But yeah, I mean, in general, I'm always like, you know, like next week's episode is going to be Henry Winkler. Like wow, I like have no so idea cool. what Henry Winkler thinks about food. I'm curious, you know? So yeah, it's, uh, it's been pretty, pretty awesome. And, and the celebrities like to be on it too, because they're used to being on podcasts where they have to talk about their career or whatever. And just to talk about food is, you know, I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to convince you, like people just love talking about food. And it's just, it's, it's a fun new way in to their personalities.
0: I feel like this could almost tie into like psychoanalyzing, like what can you learn about people by what they have in their fridge? And so oh, yeah. what, have, what have you learned? I mean, are there any big things that have stuck out?
1: You know, I, I, the, the great divider seems to be marriage. Um, you can tell right away if someone's married or single by their fridge. It's uh, the, the food to booze ratio <laughs> and also just kind of the amount of organization um, You can tell if someone's single or not. And also kids. If someone has kids, you can tell right away because there's like enough jugs of milk to like, I don't know, feed like a thousand baby calves. But uh, yeah. for some reason, there's just so much milk in those fridges. And uh, also, I would say it, almost inversely proportional to how good of a cook someone is, is how good their fridge is. I've had... I've had Michelin-starred chefs on my show, and you look at their fridges, and they're just god-awful, disgusting fridges. <laughs>
0: so mine's, mine's full of condiments, and it always reminds me of, like, there's, like, a quote in the movie Fight Club where, like, the apartment blows up. He's like, uh, you know, a refrigerator full of condiments or something like that, and I always think about that. Like, I, you just open my door, and there's, like, 80 jars, and all the drawers is, like, misos and soys and yuzu kosho and like all kinds of marinades and weird stuff it's like i don't even know there's anything to make a meal there's no proteins i mean there's some proteins but you know yeah. it's it's all these condiments and weird projects i have going on
1: yeah i have a lot of weird stuff in my fridge right now because my friend i have this buddy paul feinstein who's a who's a cookbook author and he's helping write this cookbook for this uh this guy who's got a restaurant in la called pizzana which is like a a pretty fantastic pizza place Anyway, he'll call me one after the recipe test, and he's like, I'm coming over. I'm bringing a bunch of food. I'm like, all right, cool. And, you know, I'm expecting, like, you know, pantry items, groceries, fun stuff. He'll bring me – he brought me, like, a two-gallon bag of grated aged Parmesan cheese <laughs> and then, like, like two pints of chopped shallots and half a pint of, like, sliced pepperoni. I'm like, what am I going to do with this stuff, dude? Like literally
0: like <laughs> There's worse this is the worst episode of
1: Iron Chef ever. I mean, I
0: love pepperoni. There's a million things you can do with pepperoni.
1: I know, but I have like nothing to put it on. Like I don't even have bread in my ha- in my house right now. I've just been traveling a lot, so But you do have, eat like, bread,
0: right? Like you're not on some weird like no oh, bread no, diet. Oh, I love bread. Okay. I need bread to live. Yeah, I can't have people on the podcast who promote like a no bread diet. That's like a totally weird thing.
1: <sighs> it's it's tough, man. And in LA, it's like, you know, I'm the exception. Uh so it's, uh, I, I mean, there, to me, there's nothing more satisfying than good bread and butter.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just carbs in general, like the combination of like carbs and fat is just amazing, whether it's like tortilla chips and cheddar cheese or bread and butter. Just I love that combination. It's like I need some carbs and I need some fat on there. Like that's that's all I really need to make a good meal.
1: Yeah, it's there's there's a like satisfaction is missing to me if like the other night I was just like lazy and I made like a couple eggs and I had some smoked salmon and that was it. And I was like, I need, I need a carbohydrate here to bring it all together, you know? Just a little baguette. That's all you just need. Just a little baguette. That's all I need. But the problem with a baguette is that once you bring it back to your house, like within 10 minutes, it goes bad. So totally, you totally. Eat you have to put that, you have baguette. to put it in a
0: Ziploc bag, like suck all the air out of that thing. Um, yeah. Cause you've got like five minutes before that thing's stale.
1: Yeah, it's so true. By the way, if you're a big bread fan, one of the best breads that I think exists that no one has ever had is this Persian bread called sangak, which is a very thin flatbread that's actually literally translated sangak means little rocks, and they cook it over over a bed of tiny rocks heated up. And so you get all these little pockets of goodness and it's very thin and it's very Chewy on the inside, very crispy on the outside. It is heavenly. If there's a if if you can find a a, a Persian bakery, there's a bunch of them in L. A. But it's um, it's it, it's one of the best cultures' breads I've ever had. I'm
0: gonna have to check that out. I mean, I'm in the D. C. ish area, and I mean, oh, you'll DC find has, it. D. C. has pretty much every culture represented here. But I don't think I've ever had that before.
1: Yeah, seek it out and just crisp it up and put it in the toaster. Oh, my God. It'll it, It's I put it up there. I put it up there with a, you know, an insanely good sourdough.
0: And that's your background, right?
1: Yeah. Um I'm a, a Persian. I was born in America, but my my family is all from Iran.
0: Now, did you guys have a lot of that kind of cooking growing up or was it more Americanized or kind of like a hybrid?
1: No, no hybrid going on at all. My mom cooked super traditional Persian food. She hates whenever I try to hybridize. Like once I I took sumac, which, you know, we use in a lot of our cooking. And uh, I wanted to make guacamole with sumac because I was like, oh, this will be cool. It's got the citrus flavor that you try to get from lime. Like, let's try that. And she gave me so much shit. She's like, you're so dumb. You think you can put sumac in guacamole? She calls it guacamole. I'm like, first of all, learn how to speak English, mom, and then you can (laughs) heckle me. But yeah, um, super traditional flavors. And uh, it's funny because Persian food is very, very misunderstood in America. Like no one really knows what the cuisine is like. And a big base for it is turmeric. Turmeric is used in everything, which is so funny because when turmeric became like the hip spice and everyone's like, oh, my God, I just discovered this thing. It's for inflammation. It's called turmeric. I'm like, I had turmeric in my breast milk, bro, okay?
0: Yeah, you're the OGs of turmeric, right? <laughs> yeah, we are totally the OGs of turmeric. Yeah, it's it's an amazing spice. And um, also, you know, like as a, a fresh produce item, I, I think, you know, now you're seeing more recipes that call for fresh turmeric, but I don't think you could really find it at a grocery store, you know, prior to five years ago, unless you went to some crazy like specialty health store.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I don't know any Persians who cook with fresh turmeric. Like they always use use the dried stuff. Um. Fresh turmeric is sort of, it's very annoying. It's like, I don't know. They look like tiny gingers, basically.
0: That's how I feel about ginger. Like, I love the ginger flavor, but it's so kind of obnoxious. And as small amount as I always buy, I still never use it all. Like, people are like, oh, you just need to grate it and put it in the freezer. But I always buy, like, the littlest piece. Like, I go to the grocery store and snap off this little thing for a recipe. And I use, like, half of it. And then in two weeks, it's moldy in the vegetable drawer. It's such a bad habit of mine. I'm
1: surprised that... The people who are making these, you know, the Monsantos who are, like, combining, making genetic new fruits, having combined, like, a ginger and a carrot. So it looks like a carrot. It's easy to peel, but Love it's ginger. It.
0: Yeah, you waste so much, like, cutting around the gnarly, weird shapes and, you know, the dry stuff yeah. from where someone else has already snapped. Because that's what happens. People go to the grocery store, they snap off a piece, and then the piece you buy has, like, this kind of gnarly, tough end where there was a knob attached, but someone else broke that knob off.
1: I know. Suddenly I feel like a woodworker like trying to carve a piece of wood like doing those carvings that they would do in like whale's teeth like I'm doing that on a piece of ginger. It's like very annoying. There needs there's there's got to be a better way. This is our this is our infomercial for our new ginger. Uh, we're putting
0: it out there whoever has the money investor wise wants to come up with some weird uh, GMO ginger hybrid like we've got the idea right here. Just talk to yeah, us. Yeah, we're here
1: for it. We're absolutely here for it.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I love Anything big, bold flavors, like a lot of spice, there's so much bland cooking out there. And not necessarily like restaurants, but just like people in their homes. Like when I cook for people, they're always like, this is delicious. What did you do? It's like, I used like, you know, this spice and and this thing. I just find that people tend to cook pretty plain, you know, like Mm -hmm. they won't just go to the store and buy some new spice or herb or something. It's like, what's the worst that's going to happen? So you bought this, you know, whatever spice, just buy it, try it. If you don't like it, no big deal.
1: Yeah. And I also think that there's a lot of taboo against ingredients that are amazing that people think. Like, for example, anchovies, right? Anchovies are one of those things that you put it in anything and everyone's like, what the hell is this flavor, right? And so fish sauce is basically anchovies. And people are grossed out by fish sauce and people are grossed out by anchovies. But what they're not grossed out by is like Worcestershire sauce, which is anchovies. So you just kind of teach people, hey, man, this this is something that you love, you're associating it with like, was it Garfield or Heathcliff that had the anchovy I don't remember what it was. There was a cartoon. I mean, Garfield was on.
0: lasagna, so it was probably Heathcliff.
1: Right, right, right. So, you know, little things like that or, um, you know, uh, what kombu or uh, some fun um, like dried shiitake mushrooms, like these little umami bombs, they don't sound very appetizing and they don't even smell that good a lot of the times but when you cook them into the food it just like creates a magical you know a magical uh cacophony of flavors so i think people just need to get over their fears and 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 try these new things i mean i get that it's intimidating and stuff but you know it's it's true like if you go you you're rarely going to go wrong and if you do then great that's it's trial and error
0: yeah and i think if people saw how fish sauce was made they probably wouldn't eat it
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't they just, like, take the anchovies, put them on the sidewalk in Vietnam? As yeah, it's like, are,
0: like, a, like a tarp, I think. And then as it ferments, like, all the fermented juice kind of, like, drips down off there, and they have a bucket that catches it.
1: Chris, I'm trying to convince people to start using it. And then you got to just, like,
0: you're ruining my sales pitch. Just, just like, a, a dash makes everything a little better. Just I just love that little, just... Hit a little, like something like a guacamole. Like you can just put a dash of fish sauce in there and it just like opens up your palate when you're eating it and it doesn't taste fishy, but it just gives it that something that, you know, people are like, wow, this is amazing. And I yeah. don't want to say I mean, like it's fish sauce. At, at the
1: restaurant that I'm an investor in, Estella in New York, they, the chef puts it in, uh,
0: in the beef tartare. So how long have you been an investor in them? I mean, I know of them. They're a fantastic place. I haven't been, but great reputation. Yeah, I mean, since it started,
1: it started out and um my f- Ignacio and and Tommy, two of my buddies were starting the restaurant and they were like hard up for cash. And so they just, you know, cobbled up from a bunch of friends and and 2 months later the Obamas went and went and ate there and the rest was history.
0: Do you ever have to go in and work a shift like hop on the line and cook dinner?
1: Never again, man. Never again. You know, I interned at the Spotted Pig for like three summers in a row. Oh, really? Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, Because I lived down the block and I had just come back from touring and I did 165 shows around the country and I was so exhausted and I just wanted to do something completely different. So I was going to take classes at the French Culinary Institute just for fun. And I was telling the manager there and he was like, dude, just come work here. It'll be free and you'll learn a lot more. And it was a block away from my house. I was like, all right, why not? So I went and worked there I know exactly what it's like to work in a in a crazy high intensity environment kitchen and I would never ever ever want to do it again.
0: Yeah, it's pretty rough. I've never uh worked in a big ci- I've worked in big cities but not in restaurants like that. I have a lot of friends who do and like yeah, that's just not my speed or style. Like I'm not built to be a line cook, I don't think.
1: Yeah, it's insanity. It's just the amount of heat and you're just on your feet all the time and just like in a cramped space. And also, I mean, one thing that I realized from working at the Spotted Pig was like, why it's okay to spend a little more money at these restaurants. Because the level of cleanliness and precision and OCD that goes on in the back of the kitchen, I mean, they were throwing out stuff that I was like, this is still good, guys. like, no, "Like," But their their standards were just so high. And you realize, oh, okay, this is why I'm paying five bucks extra for this dish than it would be next door. Because it's literally like, uh, it's like, it's like hospital level cleanliness back there.
0: Yeah, there has to be some kind of like, I don't know, way to figure out a B menu or something. Like, what do you do with all that stuff that nobody wants that's, that's not deemed the quality of that restaurant?
1: Oh my God, let me tell you something. So I am going to have my own show on the Food Network that comes out at the end of August. And it's a food, it's one of these food competition shows. The amount of food waste that happens on one of these food shows, like there has to be there's got to be a way to get this food into <laughs> And it's like beautiful food that just gets thrown out. Like, there's got to be a better way. So you're going to have a show on the Food Network. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I am. It's a lifelong dream. Dream come true. Um, I've always wanted to be on the Food Network. My reps never understood why. They're like, we don't understand. You're doing TV stuff, like scripted. I was like, I don't care. I've always wanted to do the Food Network. So yeah, they uh, they came at me partly because of my podcast. And, uh, we, I pitched them, uh, that we do this food competition show, but make it funny and make it almost, almost making fun of the format of the competitions on how intense they are. And it's like, you're not curing cancer guys. You're, you know, you're making a French onion soup. So they went for it and we just filmed six episodes and, uh, I cannot wait for it to come out. It's called raid the fridge. Nice. I mean look don't get me wrong I I can get into the intense food shows and it it's fun to see Gordon Ramsay just like have an aneurysm yelling at someone but I do think that there is it is time for the pendulum to swing in the other direction for a little bit.
0: Yeah bring some comedy into food that's great. Do you yeah. have your own do you have your own cooking style like if I were to ask you like what kind of foods do you like to cook say at home or if you're having a dinner party what do you kind of defer to?
1: You know I I basically Stick to Italian. that's usually my bread and butter I, I've gotten and, and it's just because it's the easiest, in my opinion. you know Italian food if you if you have a good basis of how to cook and you have amazing ingredients, you know it's hard to mess up. And it's usually not too many ingredients. you know you can whip it up pretty quickly. And it's amazing to me how much people i I, I don't know. I feel like once you really know how to make a pasta. You can make it as good, if not better than most restaurants that you go to. Most restaurants that you go to, I feel, are not doing like the best job of, of cooking pasta. They just don't really, <laughs> I don't know, there's something about it being on the line or whatever. I feel like that's something that you can probably make better at home. I also love cooking um, like steakhouse steaks for, for guests, which is another thing that I think once you master it, you can make it better at home than you can have at a steakhouse.
0: But the markup Um, is crazy on that. I mean, people always ask me what my favorite steakhouse is. It's like, I literally never go to a steakhouse. What do you, I don't want to like belittle them, but like, what are you paying for? Like, if I buy the best quality meat out there, I can cook it at home. They're not doing that much. Like, when I go out, I'm looking for something interesting or something I'm not going to do at home. I can cook a steak at home.
1: Exactly. And mind you, look, once in a while, it's fun for the vibe to go and, you know, have the martini and have the, the The waiter who's like 195 years old in his white tuxedo, <laughs> wheeling over his emphysema his emphysema uh, um, oxygen tank. I don't know. There's something kind of fun about it. But yes, I think that if I'm having guests over and I want to wow them, hell yeah, man! I'm getting a insane dry aged ribeye, which is going to be way cheaper than how much it would be at the steakhouse. I'm gonna reverse sear it because it's completely foolproof. I also have a Traeger a Traeger grill a smoker. So I use that a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, but I, it's funny because I had this moment where I was like, I cook Italian food and I've like mastered as much as I could, but this is crap. I'm like, I'm like a disgrace to my culture. I'm a, I'm Iranian. I should learn how to cook Persian food. This is, and I had this Iranian pride and I got all the cookbooks and I got my mom to write down stuff for me and I was like ready to go. And then I started cooking Persian food and I realized you can't cook Persian food consistently unless you're a grandmother and you have nothing else to do all day long.
0: Is it just like the time involved, like that everything's kind of really detailed and everything is 50
1: ingredients and braising forever. And it's like, that's like just to make like a salad. (laughs) You're like, it's just too much, man. It's, And also, then you have to learn how to cook the rice. And their rices are not just regular rices. Like, they they wash them, like, 50 times before they start cooking. And then they hand-chop all these herbs and put them into the rice. And it's delicious and wonderful. But it's Persian food culture is not like a lot of other food cultures, which are like, you know, we were poor in the home country, so we had to make do, and that's, you know, where carbonara came from. No, Persian food, like, it comes from, like, a very, like, Uh, I don't know. It comes from like royalty. Like it's what Cyrus the Great (laughs) was eating. It's like having a (laughs) feast type meal every night, huh? Everything is a feast type meal. And it's like, which is great when your grandma takes three days to make it, but I can't just whip that shit up when I have like a job and, you know, (laughs) I'm trying to like, I'm trying to make some money here, you know?
0: Oh yeah. I totally see the draw of like the 30 minute meal cookbooks and the one sheet pan, you know, because I have all these cookbooks from chefs that I love and, you know, they're from a well-known restaurant. And then you look at them and it's like, God, there's like 80 ingredients to make this one thing. Like, I just don't have it in me to make this.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, one of my favorite cookbooks and one of the most ridiculous cookbooks is the Jerusalem Cookbook by Otolenghi. Like, Oh, yeah, his books are great. His books are awesome. But yeah, it's 52 ingredients uh, to make like a tea. And you're like, dude, I, I can't. <laughs> I, how big is your, your pantry? O- Otolenghi's pantry must be like five football fields. He's like, this is this is a
0: fig paste that is from northern Syria that I'm like, dude, I I can't And have you ever had anything so kind of I don't know special or revered that you wasted it? Like this is something that I do where like I'll get something special from a shop or someone will give me something and you're like, Oh, this is for a special occasion, right? Mm. And then you're like, shit, this is out of date. Like has that ever happened to you? Or or have you anyone ever said that to you with the whole, you know, things in their fridge? Because I i don't know it's just such a shame but every once in a while i'll get something really special and i'm saving it for a special occasion and then you're like yeah. oops i missed its prime and now i've got to throw this out
1: it's happened to me a couple times with truffles and it breaks my heart because i'll be like this is i'm ready now i have the i have the uh perfect i have my risotto going <laughs> i'm ready to go and then i pull it out and it's moldy that's an expensive mistake to make too it's the worst dude i i, I can't I I have this love hate relationship with truffles like I love the flavor I don't know that I don't know that the flavor it's funny my friend Paul and I were talking about this last night at dinner is the flavor worth the price
0: no like I'm a big fan of maitake mushrooms and I tell people like go and buy some good maitakes like roast the hell out of them like yeah. you get a lot of bang for your buck and uh, like yeah. I'll do a, a little extra oil on there and then you have this like nice maitake oil like I just think I'd rather use those than get some truffles
1: yeah, I'm I'm with you. And every time I've made like a truffle risotto, like you need to add more mushrooms to like make it taste mushroom. It's so subtle. And I'm like, man, this, and I feel the same way about caviar, by the way. I will take a big fat salmon egg over like beluga or any of the fancy like Russian or Persian ones any day. Me too. I want, and they're cheap and it explodes in your mouth and it's just like awesome and funky. And I don't know, like the subtleties of the pearl you know of uh, you know these the little black pearls of russian caviar like i don't know it doesn't do i i feel like you need to be some sort of it's just for like oligarchs trying to like show off to their like side pieces
0: yeah i'm not about that at all um know, i like nice things and i like fancy things but I, I always find there's like this point of um you know the same kind of with like alcohol like you had a price point or a a certain point where mm-hmm. it's like The price Mm -hmm. doesn't pay off anymore. It's like, okay, I get buying, you know, the middle or or the upper middle, but you, you know, it's like whiskey. Like, does anyone need like a six hundred dollar bottle of bourbon? Like, I feel like there's a price range where it's like, oh, like a sixty dollar bottle is really phenomenal, and I don't, you know, Pappy Van Winkle is amazing or whatever, but it's like I don't need to pay for that.
1: No, I feel the same about wine. Like, I think. The best wines in the world that you can get are gonna be like a hundred and fifty bucks. And anything over that, it's all the same shit. And it's yeah. like you're just you're just spending extra money for a name or for something. But um I will tell you something that I do think is worth the the bang for the buck. Really, really good olive oil and really, really good balsamic vinegar. Like real balsamic from Modena. Um, you know, it'll cost you like 150 for like a tiny bottle, but It'll last you for like a decade because you don't use it like crazy. You just use it very sparingly. And it is such a flavor bomb that it's so ridiculously different from any balsamic vinegar that you get in the supermarket. And it's just so decadent and wonderful. And I really, I that, that I, will, I will splurge on.
0: What are some things that you have in your fridge? If we were to see a photo of your fridge right now, what would you have?
1: Right now, I've been traveling a lot, so I don't have a ton of stuff. Um, I do have, I did have some people over the other day. And it's funny, I have like a, I have a lot of f- free stuff that people have been sending me in my fridge. So, like, I'm on a, I'm on some, uh, a NASCAR show on Netflix and they just sent me a bunch of Coors Light. And so I had some friends over. So there's Coors Light in the fridge. There is, um, whatever, uh, oh, what is that? There's like it's not White Claw but it's like a a a hip beer company's version of White Claw is there. Um I've got a I've always got a bottle of champagne, I've always got a bottle of cider. So nothing to eat, just booze. Zero. Nothing to I, I told you I have this 2 gallon bag of grated parmesan cheese and the pepperoni and the shallots. Um I It's funny. I I I I mostly eat vegetarian at home because everyone thinks that I, you know, the stuff that I post on Instagram is like insane meals that I'm making, like, you know, a huge prime rib or something like that. But at home, I'm like, I have a bag of arugula that lasts me most of the day.
0: Yeah, I've got a bunch of weird free stuff, too. Like somehow I got on the cooking competition circuit this past year where you get sent like all this stuff for promotional and then you have to make recipes. So like I just got a five pound bag of Sour Patch Kids, but they're like chopped Sour Patch Kids. Like they're set, they're trying to pitch them to food service to like incorporate them to dessert. So they're like minced. So it's like Sour Patch Kids flakes with all this like citric acid in there. And oh my God. you know, the, the winning prize is like $5,000 plus all these like fancy knives and stuff. But it's like, I got this five pound bag. Like I literally probably need an ounce to like work on a recipe. So now I have this huge bag. It's like, what am I going to do with a five pound bag of like Sour Patch Kid... I, I should probably know what the, they're not called nuggets, but something like that. It's like, yeah. So I have things like that this summer. I got a case of King's Hawaiian rolls. It was a 45 oh, cool. pound box. Oh, that's a lot <laughs> too much. Of rolls. of like delivered to my house. It's like, I need like three of these to do some R&D, too but much. you know, so I'm on Facebook, like who wants some King's Hawaiian rolls? I have 37 and a half pounds left.
1: Yeah. I did just get a huge box of seafood from this company called Wild Alaskan Company and they've become like one of my podcast sponsors so they're like try out some of the seafood see what you think I'm like great I mean all this wild caught Alaskan stuff that's just insane like salmon and halibut and cod like all my favorite cuts and it's awesome they send it to you in like a box with like a uh, uh, dry ice and stays all you know freshly frozen. They call it because I think they freeze it right away when they when they catch it. So that's why so you like started
0: I, a food podcast to get a bunch of free food because you're such a foodie, right?
1: A million percent. Literally the only reason. Lacroix is sending me like their exclusive flavors that haven't
0: come out yet and shit. <laughs> it's great. Did you ever think you'd have such success with the podcast? Like when you started it, I don't know. Did you have any idea of like where the podcast was going to go? I
1: did not. I had zero clue where it was going to go. Um, in fact, I tried to sell it to so many podcast networks and everyone was saying no because they thought that it wasn't going to go anywhere. But for me it was just like it was literally just a labor of love. I love talking about food, I love meeting food people because people who are passionate about food are are like always very fun. And it's interesting because I've made so many more friends within my career just based on this than I ever would have, you know, just moving up in comedy, you know what I mean? Um so it was one of those things that yeah it's so cliche that when you, you know, when you do what you love to do, people are going to pay attention. Um, but that's kind of what happened. I mean, I, I put a lot of time and money and energy into it that I'd never expected to get back and, uh, it ended up working out.
0: That's awesome. Uh, how many episodes a season do you do? You do like shorter seasons, don't you?
1: We do like 14 to 16 episodes a season. Um, this season is insane though. We have, uh, You know, from the food world, we have Jacques Pepin. We have Kenji Lopez-Alt, who I'm such a huge fan of his. I
0: just had Daniel Gritzer, who's his counterpart at uh, Serious Eats, who's the culinary director. So we just he and I talked for three hours and I divided it into two episodes. So last week was part one and tomorrow part two comes out. But we sat for three hours and just like nerded out about everything from like bitterness and olive oil to like the true traditional pepper used in romesco sauce that nobody ever uses and i was just like we're gonna keep talking about all this stuff so if you want to listen to some real food nerd stuff check that out but yeah Kenji's, kenji's amazing he's on my list of people to get on the show
1: i absolutely will yeah he's so cool he's so great to talk to and then we have like Jesse Tyler Ferguson from Modern Family. Uh, we've got Ryan Blaney, who's a NASCAR driver, like a professional NASCAR driver. Um, we have Courtney Hengler from Cobra Kai. She's uh, in the, the TV show Cobra Kai. Tom Papa, Katrina Bowden. I mean, we have we have awesome guests this year, so I'm uh, I'm super stoked about this. Yeah, you have season. a
0: really good mix of guests on your show. I mean, there's a lot of like, stand-up comedians and actors and stuff, but then it's like a random food person, which is also cool, but...
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the random food people are like, literally just like people that I've had food crushes on my whole life that I finally get to like, stop being creepy about and be like, Hey man, you want to hang out? Um, like Ruth Reichel for me was just insane. I mean, Jacques Pepin too. Both of them were just like, I couldn't believe that I was talking to them. You know, I like grew up just like idolizing them.
0: Yeah. I think these people are more accessible than you think too. You know, it's, it's, as I was starting to do the show, I was like, I kind of have my bucket list of people and you have to kind of like work up the nerve to, to get to them. It's like, Oh, these people all said yes, like literally. I don't think anyone's ever said no, I don't want to come on your show, and I have to start thinking like who do I really want on my show?
1: Hey man, you got to stop. Don't give away our secrets, all right? If you tell enough people, they're all going to start podcasts and then people I, Well,
0: gonna... they they all have started podcasts. I mean, you were doing it back in 2019 before COVID made it cool, right? I mean, I started right. in November of 2019 too, and this past year it kind of exploded, and I've already seen a lot of people kind of like, oh, I got to go back to work. I guess this podcast thing's going to fizzle out."
1: Yeah, good. Get out of here, guys. More room for us.
0: More room for us. Do you have any big goals for the rest of the year, either food-related or uh, comedy and acting-related? Anything you're working on?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I've got this Food Network show coming out um, at the end of August called Raid the Fridge, which I'm just so excited about. Um, And then I also just signed a book deal with Crown Publishing to write a food memoir, uh, like a funny food memoir book um, called Lost Soul, spelled like the fish. And uh, so I'm I'm writing that now and it's taking up a lot of my time. But those two things are what I'm most excited about. I'm also trying to pitch a couple of, you know, scripted food related comedies. I'm a big fan of leaning into what works. And it seems like what's working is this intersection of food and comedy. Well,
0: that's what they always say about things that are successful is like the, the finding the hybrid, like there's plenty of comedians and actors, right? And there's plenty of people in the food world. But if you do both really well and you love them... Like, where's the intersection? I think that's where things kind of come together. This guy, um, James Altucher, I listen to, I think he calls it like idea sex, like making all these lists of things that you can do really well or you're really interested in, like where can you have these interesting things meet up? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think Scott Adams has
1: a concept like that in one of his books that I read that I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm trying to do, because it's like to be the best at one thing in the world, your chances of succeeding are really difficult. But if you're really good at two things, then your chances like logarithmically increase. And like, yeah, I always say like, I'm not the funniest comedian in the world and I'm not the biggest foodie in the world, but I might be one of the funniest comedians who's a foodie (laughs) in the world.
0: Yeah. I don't know of many others. I mean, occasionally they come up as bits. Did you, did you do a lot of like food bits in your comedy over the years? I, you know, I'm starting to do a lot more of it now. I'm definitely
1: starting to get into it more I'm leading into it, um, it's funny though, because some of the bits are so food specific that I feel like they're, they'd only work for a food crowd. Like, I, there's this bit that I love that I've been doing that, like, it's just not getting the best reaction. But about how, like, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop going to these hipster restaurants because they're getting a little too fast and loose with the term surf and turf. Like, surf and turf should mean one thing: filet and lobster. That's it. And then these guys will be like, "Hey, we have a surf and turf special." It's lamb shoulders served on an octopus. It's like, no, it's not. That is not surf and derp. It's a duck breast served on a barnacle.
0: Stop it. Now. <laughs> well, I love that. I think that would kill with like, you know, me, my my audience for sure. Good. But yeah, that was a very a very, a very niche type joke there, I think. Totally. Yeah, well, I was really excited to have you on the show. We didn't really talk about this, but like Cobra Kai is one of my favorite shows, and you you play an interesting kind of character on the show you know it's like a a smaller part but it adds a lot of pizzazz to the show um so when you reached out i was like does this guy from cobra kai want to come on my food show that's really interesting
1: yeah um i play a noosh in cobra kai uh i work at the dealership with uh, daniel russo i it's been an insanely amazing ride just because that show has become like the number one show in the world and i'm starting to tour with um Brett Ernst, who plays Cousin Louie in the show, we're doing a comedy tour. And the great thing is, is that everywhere we go, I turn it into like a food tour. Like we were just in Texas last week and we hit up like this place, Valentine's Barbecue in Austin that was like uh, recommended by like uh, Aaron Franklin actually recommended it. I mean, it's just like we, we hit up all these Tex-Mex spots in San Antonio. So I'm, I'm literally just using my comedy as a vehicle to get me to all the best restaurants that I've always wanted to go to around the country,
0: I would do the same thing if
1: I were in your shoes. Yeah, it's kind of reminds me. There was this guy who was like a serial killer, and he was like a comedian, and he would every town he was doing a comedy show, and he would kill someone. So it's kind of the same, a little different,
0: but with food. But with food, same, and same, no but, killing, but different.
1: Much less yeah. killing.
0: <laughs> Are you team Team Daniel or Team Johnny? <sighs>
1: I mean, I have to be Team Daniel. Uh, you know, he did me wrong a little bit in uh, in Season 2, but he made up for it in Season 3. And uh, I think it's funny, though. Those guys, the, the two of them, are just the nicest people in the world, like in real life. They're just... I love them so much because I've worked with a lot of people who are way less famous than they are. And who are way more dickish than they are? Like they could be so dickish if they wanted to be. And they're don't just you know who great. I
0: am? I'm the Karate Kid.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's what I would do if I were the Karate Kid. I would use that. I'd go to the DMV and tell me to wait in line. Do you know who I? I won the All Valley. Okay, I would play
0: that for life for sure.
1: Yeah, um, but the sleeper, the sleeper, my sleeper favorite person on the show. Is, she is a guest on on Green Eggs and Dan this year. Is Courtney Hengler, who plays Amanda LaRusso, Daniel's uh, wife. She is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, and she's just like when we're working together, like w- we just hang out the three of us, me, her, and Brett Ernst, the Cousin Louis character. And we, she loves hanging out with us because we're comics and we're just like busting on each other, and she she jumps in seamlessly. Um, so her episode's actually one of my favorites. She's such a funny person.
0: Yeah. I thought the cast is great. Like there's so many other characters and I really enjoyed it. You know, I didn't watch it from the beginning cause that whole weird, like you had to pay for YouTube, you know, whatever. When it first came out, like you had to pay for YouTube. I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel like paying for YouTube. And then once it hit right. Netflix, I was like, oh, I'm all in. This is like the best show. And I probably should have been paying for it from the start cause it's amazing. So then You're I like, like,
1: I already steal a Netflix password so I can watch it now. Yeah, I mean, the YouTube days were sad because this show was out and we all knew it was out and we knew it was this magical show,
0: but no one was watching it
1: because we'd be like, you got to watch this show. It's on YouTube Red.
0: Yeah, like they're trying to get people to subscribe to YouTube. Like that was probably their, their big marketing thing is like, we've got the Karate Kid show, like come pay for YouTube, right? Yeah, that's what they tried. But what
1: ended up happening is everyone would pay for the 30 day free trial and then just like cancel after binging the show. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to the next season of that. But yeah, I mean you've you've done so many interesting roles. You seem to be, I don't know, is character actor the word for it? I'm not in the acting world. I mean, you always have these really interesting characters that you play.
1: I love playing weird characters. I mean it's it's my favorite thing because maybe it's just because I'm not like that good of an actor that I can just play normal.
0: <laughs> oh, you're a good actor. Come on.
1: <laughs> so I
0: like to I like
1: to hide behind the veil of a character for sure. Um, What's it? What's it
0: like working for Disney? Was that an interesting experience? Like, did you enjoy working on a Disney show? uh, Yeah,
1: I mean, look, it had its pluses and minuses, but the best thing is that that was my first acting job ever. So it basically, I was kind of under the radar, learning how to act and learning how to act on a TV show with cameras and you know hitting your mark and directors and you know stuff like it was sort of like acting boot camp for me. So I really loved it for that aspect. I mean, it was also like just weird to be suddenly super famous to like 5 and 6 year old kids you know cuz kids like kids don't get that you're an actor playing a role like when they see you they think you're the actual guy which uh got me in trouble i was i was at a mall and this little kid was walking with his dad kid sees me lets go of his dad's hands and just starts sprinting towards me grabs onto my leg and is like oh my god it's you i can't believe it's you the dad runs over is like whoa 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 son who is this man I'm like, sir, it's okay. I'm just an actor. No, he's not. He's Falafel Phil. I see him in my room every night at 8 o'clock.
0: <laughs> so now I'm on parole, Chris. And yeah, I mean, uh, I've got I've got uh, twins who are eight years old, nine years old-ish, and they like binge watch whatever's on Disney. Like they just work through, they'll watch like seven seasons of a show. Like they'll just find a new show and they'll watch every single episode in a row. But it's amazing. Even the stuff that I'm just watching out of the corner of my eye, like they're all well-known, you know, like now I'll be watching a show on NBC where someone's like 24 years old and you're like, that's that girl who's on that show that my kids were watching for seven seasons. You know, it's just really oh, yeah. interesting like that. And they'll pick up on that sometime. They're like, oh, that's so-and-so from whatever show. I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I've worked with a bunch of Disney, like former Disney stars. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's someone, who's, her name is Paris Burrells, and she was on a Disney show and she's on The Crew, this Netflix show that I'm on. And she's like, you know, she comes in and is like so fun and nice and this and that. And then we all find out she has like 6.2 million followers on Instagram.
0: So what do you want to leave our audience with before we get out of here today? Any words of wisdom, things about food? I mean, look you you guys
1: are you guys are my new people, and I'm just hoping that uh, you welcome me with open arms. Uh, I'm I'm really trying to make inroads in the food world because you know in the comedy world I've I've got my people, and now I got to get my people in the food world. So um, I hope you uh, I hope you listen to my podcast Green Eggs and Dan. I hope you follow me on all the socials at Stand Up Dan. And if you're uh, in LA or if I'm in your town, come come uh, watch a live show. It's uh it's very fun. I, I will do food-specific bits that will alienate most of the crowd, but you will you will love them. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this is, a, this is kind of a new venture for me. It's a new world for me. And oh, and watch the Food Network show, Raid the Fridge. So yeah, um, just if you've listened this far, uh, you've already done me a huge favor. So thank you very much.
0: Well, we're a very supportive community. I'm sure you'll have a lot new fans here, people who didn't even know you were in the food world. Uh, and I can't wait for stand up, like to be able to go out and do things again. Right. But like, I haven't been to a show in forever. And, uh, hopefully if you come out this way on the East coast, I'll catch you at a show sometime.
1: You know, it's crazy. I was just in DC two weeks ago.
0: What? Yeah. Like,
1: doing a show. Uh, yeah. At the Arlington draft house in Arlington, oh, Virginia. Damn
0: it. How did I not know? <laughs> we had already even scheduled your, your show at that time. Next time. Ugh, Next time. What a time.
1: bummer. Next time. I promise.
0: Yes. Well, thanks so much to all of our listeners. This has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Thanks to Dan. And as always, you can catch us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.